Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2021. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Ori, they, them, and... And Mar, they, them. Mar, thanks so much for coming back onto the show after, I guess it's been about a year, a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I, it's surprising the year... Time just seems to keep just like you look away for a split second and then you come back and it's like, oh shit, it's been eight months, 12 months, 13 months. So I'm very glad that you guys invited me back. Thank you so much. And I'm also very glad that he released a chapter because I was not anticipating that this year. Oh yeah. Well, as for the time, it it feels like only yesterday. We've just had a little time skip and I'm sure we're all just like (laughs) one year more badass than we were previously. Probably have some new moves. Exactly. I spent this entire pandemic learning the art of the sword. I did not. I did absolutely not <laughs> this entire pandemic, but I could have. <laughs> That's re- That reminds me of earlier in the pandemic when I claimed that I'd just gotten super buff because we weren't using cameras and no one had seen me in months. <laughs> <laughs> and as for what we're reading, um, yeah, you just, you just jumped to the heart of it. I was in touch with you because we wanted to have you on because we liked talking to you so much. And I was like, well, we could do more Sailor Moon 4200 or other Sailor Moon, or we could do another fandom. And, you know, we kind of had to push back when we were going to try to record together because you had some stuff going on in your life. Oh, yeah. And then in the middle of that, Angus McSpawn said, oh, yeah, I'm releasing the new chapter of Sailor Moon 4200. (laughs) And I at least was like, oh, okay, we've got to do that then. Because I need to reread Sailor Moon 4200 anyway to read the new chapter. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm always here for any excuse to sit down and like just have a reasonable explanation on why I've turned off my phone and I'm spending all day reading this entire story again. <laughs> it's so funny because I was re-listening to our earlier podcast in preparation for this one and we were just we spent I don't know, we spent several minutes speculating like will they ever get, will he ever get back to this story? Like, you know, and, and then it actually happened and it's been what, 10 years since the last chapter was released more? 11. It, wow. 11 years. It's, I realized that and I was like, oh damn, I'm old because I think the very last time he updated was right when I was like in, shortly after my birthday before I went to college. <laughs> So I was like, oh, God, it's been 10 years. And I was like, oh, God, I've been graduated for 10 years. But of course, here's the thing is that I reread these, you know, chapters 9 through 14 that I read before. And then I was able to jump right into the new chapter because McSpawn released it in between us deciding to do this episode. And I mean, you know, he, he actually put it up. He had declared that it was finished, but he put it up just like less than a week ago. And we all read it. <laughs> and yeah. I finished the newest chapter. And now I'm like, great. So when's the next chapter coming out? Right, exactly. I reached the end of the chapter. I was like, I was talking to my friend at the time, and I was like, oh shit, the chapter's done. I This is so much shorter than I anticipated, but it's not. I just churned through it because yeah. it's such a good story. It's still like 30,000 words, this new chapter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a really long chapter, but... I mean, I don't know. I, I would like to wildly speculate. Maybe this means that, like, he's back on a kick and he's going to keep writing more. I don't know. Like, or it could be another 10 years. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think this episode is, um, technically, it might be a cutting-edge fanfic deep cut. I'm not sure that we've ever talked about a fanfic that went up 
you know, five days ago before. <laughs> Does it still qualify as a retro fanfic if it updated in 2021? I mean, the older chapters sure do. Yeah, I was thinking uh, about that, though, because, like, as a work, right? Like, mm-hmm. you would say, like, if it was a novel that someone worked on for 20 years, you wouldn't call it a retro novel. But this started to be published so long ago that it's part of a retro body of work, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's grandfathered in as retro. Yeah, That's what yeah. I'm going to say. <laughs> Works for me. And it's such a fascinating, speaking of that, it's such a fascinating example of a fandom time capsule in a way, because like a lot of the tropes and a lot of the things that occur in it were more common back in the 90s and early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So you're reading it and you're like, oh, well, this isn't, this isn't what I was expecting. But part of that's like just good storytelling and part of that's just like, it's a fascinating little time capsule. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I guess... Should we try to get into the content a little bit? Yeah, well, first off, do we want to talk through the chapters that we read starting with nine? Or do we just want to talk about the new one? What's, what's our thoughts here? Well, look, technically, last time, and by last time, I mean episode 96, <laughs> uh, Sailor Moon 4200, which went up like, I don't know, May or June of last year or something. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think technically we had read episodes, uh, chapters one through seven. In practice, we kind of talked through eight also. Yeah. Um, be, uh, even though you hadn't read it, uh, Tori, just because right. Mar and I couldn't help ourselves. Mostly <laughs> me. And so I would say, how about we kind of try to summarize where, like, just real, real quick, in case someone didn't listen to the previous one, though they probably should have, um, just kind of like what the state of things was chapters one through eight, and then we talk about Crystal Fall. That's what I'm going to propose. That sounds like a good plan to me. Sure. All right, so who wants to try to, like, in one minute recap the situation, like, what the story was in chapters one through eight? I'll boldly volunteer one of you two for that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's see how much we can summarize it. Yeah. Uh, It's a Sailor Moon fanfic post-Crystal Tokyo, which was a utopia that was destroyed, like, a thousand years ago. And this mm-hmm. is a new civilization built on the ashes. And the enemy that destroyed that old Crystal Tokyo is secretly in charge of the government and uh, dwelling underneath the city. And basically wants the Sailor Senshi to be, like, kind of revived and reactive. And conveniently for it, they are being reborn and fighting occasionally crime and uh, crystal monsters. And um, Ray is still around under another name, but she doesn't have her powers. And Artemis is around with his granddaughter... Bendis, great-granddaughter, and at that point we had like five senshi who were all getting together uh, like to talk not in combat for the first time in chapter eight. And we'll, we're not going to delve into like all the characters, I don't think, because that's, that's episode 96 <laughs> content, I think. We spent a yeah, lot of absolutely. time on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well the only thing is, you know, they're like finding reborn senshi, essentially. You know, right. that's kind of the premise. And then there's like 50 other subplots that are going on that, you know, yeah. we didn't even get to all of them in the previous episode. <laughs> yeah, you have to admire, you have to admire the fact Angus McSpoon is like, he's juggling so much throughout each and every one of these chapters. You're like, oh, well, the main storyline is a little bit Lovecraft meets Sailor Moon. And then underneath, you've also got like classic teen shenanigans. Mm-hmm. 
it's not even that shenanigan-y. Like, a lot of the teen <laughs> storylines are very, like, played straight and serious, actually. Mm. They are. It's actually, with the latest art, I was telling my friend, I was like, oh, this is actually one of the most authentic depictions of spotty little teenage girls that I've read in a really satisfying way. Well, in terms of the content here that we're going to talk about, uh, we start with the opposite of teen shenanigans, which is definitely not teenage and nothing at all shenanigan-y. Because I think, <laughs> I think we start talking about Crystal Fall. Like, we were talking about the previous episode and, you know, just now a little bit, that, like, they'd all kind of gone together for, like, a senshi meeting. Some of them were really properly meeting each other for the first time. And this is also the point where basically all of Chapter 9 is spent with the survivors of Crystal Tokyo, which is Rey and Artemis and also Makoto, who was reborn as a teenage girl but remembers some of it because she got her memories back describing what actually went down that destroyed Crystal Tokyo all that time ago. And it's really important for the characters, but also the reader, because McSpawn's just been hinting at this stuff. We're kind of throwing off like a couple of things here and there for, you know, eight chapters. Mm -hmm. And you haven't gotten any details, really. And here you kind of get all the, de all the details, really, practically. <laughs> Crystal Fall as a chapter is just, I think that's genuinely maybe not the best chapter in the entire fanfic, but I think it's one of the most skillfully handled because you, it's not entirely a tone jump, but it does really emphasize and play straight on the fact we, in the previous eight chapters, we've just been continuously getting gentle reminders, oh, this is kind of post-apocalyptic. And then in Crystal Fall, it's, it's such a good uh, middle ground between giving too much information and kind of demystifying the experience for the reader and giving just enough, you're like, oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really well done in that way, Mar, because the the characters aren't holding back information, except well, except a piece or two here or there. <laughs> but mostly, mostly they're not. But they also don't understand it. And that's part of what, that's part of what makes the whole Crystal Fall story so tragic is that there's an element at the end of what the hell even just happened? Like, even to the people yeah. who lived through it. They don't even know some of, like, the base causes or, like, you know, reasons why some of this stuff went down or even exactly what happened at the end in some ways. And so there's definitely all these mysteries remaining. Yeah, and it's so... That's one of the reasons the chapter is so satisfying. The characters aren't entirely sure of, like... They know some things, and they each have their own individual perspectives of how it's happened and what occurred during and possible motivation. But as we're learning about the events, the characters are also largely learning about the events. Yeah. And let's try to touch on the content a little bit. Oh, but you know what? There's so much to touch on. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it's a story in Crystal Tokyo, all, and that means that all of the characters are around from actual Sailor Moon. Suddenly we're like, oh, and Ami is there. And like, mm -hmm. there's Haruka and Michiru, and that's very weird, as someone who's been reading Sailor Moon 4200. <laughs> but I, I guess it starts off with like, they detect a weird anomaly underneath Crystal Tokyo in the course of like normal excavations or construction, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was and that uh, they were building a subway system or a tube of some sort at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Ami gets some weird readings. Like, that's the start of it. 
um, and they have to investigate. And so they yeah, send so they like, like a boar down, like very, it, it takes forever to get there. It's like very far down into the earth. I know it's specified, but I, I don't know how far it is, but, <laughs> and down there they discover this like cold anomaly and things get really horror, like not in the same sort of Lovecraftian way. They get sort of like survival horror um, or suspense. I, think... I can't even, it's almost like alien. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not I, I agree. It's not like you could call this Lovecraft pastiche or even that like Lovecraft in content. But the most Lovecraftian part of this, I would say, is when after the initial kind of experiment, like investigations fail and doesn't like don't some explorers come back up like heavily wounded and stuff mm-hmm. um, early yes. on. They yeah. send back down Sailor Moon to check it out. And that is Chibiusa. Um you know, because who's now Usagi, because who would put up with being called Chibiusa once you are past <laughs> about the age of, you know, eight, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, there comes a point where that nickname needs to be retired. And it's insinuated she's about, she's she's very clearly an adult in this chapter. It's every, I don't believe that they actually give us that age, but it seems like she and Diana are both supposed to be like mid-twenties or something. Early I mean, who knows? Like they're immortal. <laughs> yeah, as far as yeah. you can extrapolate from that, because we really don't know when they were born, like, and how old everyone was. Uh, anyway, but yeah, <laughs> I think for all intents and purposes, like maybe not, maybe she's a thousand years old, but she's basically mid twenties, you know. <laughs> and so I forget, I forget some of the, the details here, but um, S- Sailor Moon ends up going down to explore. I like to check it out, like scout it out. I don't remember why they only send her. I don't remember. And obviously, we're from the horror movie audience thing back here where we're like, no, don't do it. That's yeah. a bad idea. Well, because there's already been like whispering voices and extreme colds down there. Right. And of course, we know from the previous chapters that the enemy, you know, has this whole cold thing going on from our... underneath Tokyo, right? Right. So, so we, we know we it's basically like... we know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know that it's bad news anyway. Yeah. But like she goes down there and she's got a communicator and you're hearing what she says and then like things go south and then she starts, you know, she's not attacked by a thing, right? It's more uh, a presence, is it? I, I'm trying to mm-hmm. find the spot here, but this, this, this thing's it's so actually, long. It's vague. I feel like most of it is, it's hard to recall. I did read this a little while oh, ago. Oh, here it is. But, oh, you got it? Go for it. Yeah. Her, her lights go out. Because they're, we know because they're crystal powered and this is a thing. Um, even though they're supposed to last forever. And then she's like, they're gone. It's pitch black. I think I can manage. I hope. I'll start to find my way up. If you can hear me, send someone down to meet me with another torch. Please. And then she's like, wait, I'm all turned around. Which way is up? And, you know, we've got her narrating these horrifying things mm-hmm. that we only get, like, glimpses of through the words she says to the mm-hmm. people who are back up above. So that's what I'm saying is, like, the kind of Lovecraft. It's very, like, the statement of Randolph Carter. Or that kind of thing, where like, where if she if she started describing like it's horrible, I can't even describe the horror, or like you know if she was like writing it down like as she was being attacked, that would be the most Lovecraft thing. But she's actually in communication with someone and saying it, so it's a little bit more you know reasonable. Um, and then it's draining everything. She gets cold. She she, she comes across a bright light, and she's like, if I can just see it clearly. And then she tries using one of her attacks, which is Moonflash. And mm-hmm. then 
The communicator seemed to ring as Sailor Moon shouted, Moon Flash! Pluto's eyes snapped wide open. Oh no, she said, and vanished. Suddenly, the communicator burst into a roar of sound. Static, surely. White noise at a volume that seemed incredible for such a tiny device. But mixed with it, the listeners almost thought they could hear voices. Thousands of voices. Calling. Screaming. Just as suddenly it stopped and there was a bare moment's silence. They heard Sailor Moon say clearly, It is free. There was a strange splashing sound like a cup of water being poured out on the ground. The communicator went dead. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That is legitimately, I think that is like one of the best scenes. And it's so satisfying. It's like, what really struck me in you reading it out loud and everything else is the bit where they heard voices. Because if you, like, we had that foreshadowed to an extent beforehand when the workers were down there and they kept saying, say again, mm -hmm. say again, what did you say? Are you talking to me? And they couldn't hear Amy at all, but they could hear something. That was definitely the creepiest part. And and I can picture, you know, I can hear it. Like when um, Sailor Moon is talking, I can hear it like as like static, crackly, calm voice that's like barely getting through, you know, it's so <laughs> rooted in kind of a modern horror or like thriller sort of movie trope. I think it works super well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so, it's so good in order to like build reader empathy with this moment because everyone's had that moment where they're like, oh, well, something, something dangerous or alarming might have happened. I should get a hold of somebody and check in on them, like a loved one coming in late or whatever else. And you can't get to them and you're like, oh, this is very stressful. It's like that. They can't. They should be able to contact the above ground. Yusaki should have been able to hear uh, Amy and the others on the surface, and they can't. And that's, it just, it's a very small scale horror in a way, but I think that makes it work even better. And in this exercise of turning Sailor Moon into a horror thriller, like it's very smart to kill Usagi immediately, both because <laughs> Both because of, like, the Ginzuisho angle and, like, the fact that she might be powerful enough to be helpful or whatever. But also, she's the one who represents the future and hope and, like, is a figurehead for Crystal Tokyo. And, like, if, she, if she's dead right here, like, that <laughs> throws everyone in disarray. And Serenity's immediately taken out of commission because the Ginzuisho starts having, like, the Silver Crystal, right, starts having this feedback that she kind of encases herself in a protective bubble and she's fighting back against. And that makes total sense to us as the readers, knowing that, like, hey, the enemy has some kind of, like, crystal control or, like, you know, influence. And so it doesn't not make sense, but it means that she's also not there as, like, not even as a morale, like, person to keep things together. Which means all of the char other characters are kind of fighting their own fights against despair or being oriented <laughs> or, you know, that kind of thing in addition to the, the war fights that are going to be happening very shortly. Yeah, and... Like you said, killing her off immediately was such a good move. And narratively, it's such a good move because it really, like, you're discussing the horror of, like, the literal representation of the future being murdered. But, like, shortly before, I think probably, like, about one time jump back from that, we get told explicitly she is the only young senshi. The rest, there have been no one else to pick up the young senshi wants, so, and they couldn't figure out why, and they were worried about that, and then they have her go and get killed, and it's like, oh damn. It's such a nice way of underlining that. 
I think what is really interesting is, you know, this almost the whole chapter is this flashback and it's great to get that perspective, but it also coming basically in halfway through what we have available to us so far, right? So you're all of a sudden getting this sense of threat. Like you realize, yeah, we knew Crystal Tokyo fell, but now, you know, we're sort of confirming it was the same enemy and how bad things actually got because you also get, you know, like Amato mentioned, Usagi or um, Queen, Neo Queen Serenity, like encasing herself in the, the energy of the Genshin show out of pure grief, it feels like because she lost her daughter and you actually get really strong grief reactions. It sort of amps up the tension of our maid narrative saying like, well, these girls could die too. We, we don't know that like in Sailor Moon, we're pretty sure most people are not going to die, you know, in the show. It's going to work out. And this story, not, not, not so much. Now, a whole lot of things happen in this one chapter. We could, we could do this episode on Crystal Fall. It would not be a problem. <laughs> Which means we're going to have to really, really condense the stuff that goes down in this chapter. Is that, and so let me try to get, get the broad outline of the action, and then let's try to touch real quick on like any character points we really want to talk about or whatever. The broad action is that after Serenity's out of commission, Pluto's disappeared, and, you know, Usagi is very, very dead. Um, then these waves of, of crystal monsters start appearing all over the world, and, like, there's any number of them. And eventually, like, later on the fanfic, you get another horror movie reveal about where they're coming from, which mm -hmm. is that any person who had any kind of prosthetic device, basically, any kind of implant for any medical reason whatsoever... Which is very common because uh, it's, you know, utopian future, right? Right. It wasn't <laughs> uncommon. And, you yeah. know, all of the technology runs on crystals. And anybody who had any kind of piece of crystal in their body is being turned into a horrible monster that then has to be, you know, kill or be killed and is trying to destroy all of humanity. And, you know, they throw out the math at one point where, you know, Ami says, oh, yeah, that's like 1% of people. 1% of every person on the planet is turning mm -hmm. into a deadly monster that is not easily put down by a common, you know, human being. And so, yeah. you know... And it's horrifying. <laughs> panic. Mass panic. Yeah. War is breaking out, people are being slaughtered, like, cities are falling, and eventually they all start converging to siege Tokyo. And a lot of the, the fanfic is the siege of Tokyo, where, like, the remaining, you know, survivors are trying to hold out there. And they know... You know, they've put together the pieces that, oh, clearly the evil enemy is that, like, thing right under the city. But they can't really get there easily um, because of, like, the, the tunnel collapses. Like, the enemy collapses the tunnel really quick and they have to, like, kind of bore back down. And then there's sabotage from people who, like, uh, from one of the people who had gone down in the tunnel originally <laughs> and, had, like, gotten freeze burns. But, like, now they're under the enemy's control and they end up, like, sabotaging the drilling process. It's, there's all this stuff happening. And there's so much despair. <laughs> Because, like, for a lot of the fanfic, you can be with the characters up until that, like, drilling part. We're like, okay, well, they need to get to the enemy, and then they need to try to fight the enemy directly. And they never even have that chance. Absolutely. Like, that's, I think that's one of the, the fact that they don't have a chance also helps integrate the horror aspect of Crystal Fall into the chapters that follow after it. Because we get to see directly even the most experienced like i think they i forget how long they're supposed to have been senshi at that point but even the most experienced functionally immortal senshi are fighting this and there's an aspect where it's like oh it's crystal monsters there's no big deal they'll figure this out 
But it makes such an interesting point of emphasizing that it's far more than that. And it casts such a nice foreshadowing of sorts over the battles in the next few chapters. Are there any like character points specifically from Crystal Fall we want to touch in on before we just kind of are, I think we're just going to have to like skip over it mostly and get back into the future to see about <laughs> yeah. the kids, Marty. We, uh, yeah. we did, we talked last in last episode about the whole thing with Artemis and Bendy's, which comes out in this chapter. And then maybe did we talk? I think the other thing that comes out in this chapter is that Isago finds out that Suzue is a part of a church of serenity. Yeah. I mean, that's, so, that's post that's, the main body of crystal fall. Yeah. I kind of meant like that's in about the past. It. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> I thought you meant the whole chapter. My bad. (laughs) No, no, I think that covers it because we do kind of have to move. There's so much to say, but we like Mm -hmm. we do have to move through um, all of these chapters. It's it's pretty gripping because McSpawn, even though you know that this is going to end really badly, he does keep giving you just enough hooks about like some way that maybe like this can be turned around in some positive way. Uh, Just enough to keep you and the characters going and not just being like this is just death and and horror with with no end which it basically <laughs> is um but he, he manages to keep it compelling but yeah then back in the present tori you were just saying um that was one of the plot threads we were really excited to talk about at the end of like last session or at le- i was at least with suzue the new mm-hmm. sailor uranus who's a member of the church of serenity which is looked down upon by everybody else in the culture who is not a part of the church of serenity um and she goes in front of Itsuko, who is Rei, who is, you know, a basically a, the equivalent of like one of the one of the apostles in like Christianity in her religion and basically like tells her, you know, oh, you know, tell me how I can serve you, blessed lady or whatever. And Itsuko does not respond too well. Yeah, they actually refer to the former senshi as saints and serenity as their goddess. So... And Ray being Ray, or rather Itsuko now, um, yeah, it gets really bad. But I do like, there is this whole thread throughout all of these chapters of Suzue's religion, and it's really interesting because they are really looked down on and persecuted for their beliefs. And there's some discussion in later chapters of why that may be. But there's a lot of tension because, you know, you're like, well, you know, believing that someone's a god, you know, believing in gods, like, if you don't have any evidence for it, like in our society, is feels a bit silly but in their society maybe she was like there is actually compelling evidence here right <laughs> so it's actually sort of unclear like obviously people who were friends with serenity before are like no she was just a person but yeah Suzu is not completely like off you know it's weird that she believes so strongly because there's no like clear evidence one way or the other but it could go both ways Yeah, and I think her religion is handled, like, super well in that, because on one hand, we do continuously told, like, the Moonies are crazy. No one likes the Moonies. They're persecuted by a lot of people in society. And with some of the characters, like Beth's point of view towards it, I believe, in one of the earlier chapters, you're not exactly primed to necessarily be too sympathetic until you see Suzua, and then you're like, getting a hand-on point of view with it. And then it becomes a lot more almost plausible because on one hand, it seems unlikely. On the other hand, she does, Sailor Moon does do a lot of fantastic things with the fucking crystal that no one else does. 
Yeah, and Rei and Makoto are offended on a personal level by this whole concept because, right, they knew Usagi as a person who was a friend and not like a figure of like being put on a pedestal, you know, being worshipped. Um, but l like you said, Mar, she ends up getting in a kind of philosophical debate <laughs> with Itsuko. Like they meet up a couple of times to talk about this once Itsuko gets over her initial reaction of just rage. Um, and... You know, Itsuko says, look, you didn't know her, like, she she was a ridiculous fucking human being, and, like, she couldn't get up on time, whatever, and obviously she had wonderful qualities, but she was not a goddess. She was just a person. And, um, you know, I remember Suzume's response there, which is like, Jesus Christ and the Bodhisattva, you know, it's not the Bodhisattva, and, and the Buddha uh, were people. They were humans. They were just also more than humans. Um, <laughs> right. And I it's was like, okay. It's extremely compelling, Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm inclined to worship Serendi as a goddess if I'm coming out of, you know, Crystal Tokyo as a golden era ruled by a magic god queen. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. you actually have people who have witnessed this, unlike the stories, you know, they're told about Jesus, which could easily be made up. Like, you have clear witnesses. Like, this is more compelling evidence for religion than we have in our culture at all. So, I sort mean, of like, eh. As a Sailor Moon viewer, I do remember one time when she defeated the manifestation of all evil in the universe by growing angel wings and holding out a hand in friendship really, really earnestly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, that that happened. Yeah, when you think of the actual series, there's a lot of compelling, compelling arguments towards in towards what the Moonies believe. Yeah. But but yeah, for Suzue, it's it's really cool because I mean Suzue is a really cool character in general. And I, I could talk about her for a really long time, but it's like, I guess what I want to praise, it's not just that her religion is only one of the things about her character. It's actually that her religion ends up being multiple different plot things about her character. Like, she grows in all kinds of different ways, There's the, and, or like, she has all these character arcs in different ways relating to her religion, not even just in one way. And so, for example, there's, she tries to go to one of her priests and talk about, oh, I met, like, this religious figure, and he doesn't believe her. And that's part of her, like, recognizing that, like, th just because someone has religious authority doesn't mean they're wise or all-knowing or that she can trust them completely or that they're gonna, and, you know, that's a plot thing. Okay. And then at one point, she decides to come out as a, like, take pride in her religion and stop, like, hiding it as much. And that's, like, there's all these different things. Can I just say, though, yes, I think she develops really well with, like, how she takes ownership of it, but, like, that first interaction where she goes to the, the priest, they call them intercessors, mm -hmm. was the most frustrating to me because she just talked to Itsuko about it. Itsuko was like, even holy men can be wrong. And then she talks to the intercessor, and the intercessor is wrong. Instead of her going, oh, my religion might be wrong, she goes, oh, Sailor Mars was a holy figure, so Itsuko could be wrong. I'm like, ah, <laughs> bad logic, kid. But uh, No, that's that's not wrong, though. It's not, but it. she doesn't even, uh, yeah. I mean, she, she does say the intercessor was wrong, so therefore Itsuko proved her point, so Itsuko must be wrong about my religion. I'm like, that's a bit circular if you think about it. But anyway. I mean, here's the only frustrating thing. About, the most frustrating thing about that scene for me is she goes to the intercessor and she's like, I've met these holy figures and, you know, and been talking to them and, like, I need, I need help working out, like, all this stuff. And the intercessor is like, yeah, everybody's been telling me they've, like, freaking seen the sailor senshi and, like, you're a liar or whatever. Suzu at no point even seems tempted to go, like, 
Oh, also, I'm Sailor Uranus. Here's my henshin wand. I can transform in front of you, like, right here, right now, if you want. Like, and I, I understand why she doesn't, but it never even seems on the table, really, in her mind. Yeah, and that's a little bit fascinating, because that's... I really enjoy her character overall. I think she's one of the more nuanced characters in the story, which is a hard title to get, because they're all pretty great. But... I almost wish that that had been more directly analyzed in that because she's kind of like, oh, I inher- I'm Sailor Uranus. I inherited this wand and everything. But it would be interesting to see if she had been tempted at that moment. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I-, I think I can clearly extrapolate the reason she didn't because at this point, she's actually really co- uncomfortable with being Sailor Uranus. Like, she doesn't know how to... I, I mean rectify her religion with her identity she's thinking like who am i i'm nobody and she doesn't quite get to resolve that a bit more until later so i can imagine it'd be a lot of like tension for her you know doing that in front of in her church in front of her intercessor however i think you're right mar like it would be better it would be nice to see like a little bit more of how that actually played out in her head ken are we ready to jump to another of the many 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 plot threads here (laughs) (laughs) absolutely and I'm not even going to try to go by chapter. It's impossible. Um, <laughs> but I'm thinking about the whole surveillance of the of Itsuko's um, gymnasium, the Olympus plot thread, which comes to a head um, in this set of chapters, where basically the authorities, due to some some mistakes by Mooncats, but let's not get into it, end up like <laughs> confirming. Oh, well, that's, it's not just that either. It's also, like, finding some forged documents about you know, the ownership being passed from Ray to Ray several times and that sort of thing. Anyway, they, they figure out that Ray is Ray, that Itsuko is Ray, and also that Itsuko has contacts with the Sankaku tribes, which are kind of the Yakuza equivalent here. It's not completely their whole deal, but it, for the government, that's close enough. And so they come in to arrest her, and um she ends up needing to flee the olympus and all this and like forge a new identity and because at that point mio you know formerly makoto was staying with her because her family kicked her out she has to get a new identity too and all that kind of thing um one of there's a lot to talk about in that plot thread and but one of the things i want to touch on is sailor pluto because it's always interesting seeing what authors do with her we saw her once before in the previous chapters that we read but here, she kind of swoops in with a car at exactly the right time to like give Itsuko an escape route. <laughs> and, and she and Itsuko have, this, have a really long conversation like over the course of that evening, back and forth, in that chapter. And it's, I thought it was interestingly done. I think, yeah, the entire dynamic between Itsuko and... Uh... Former Setsuna, what, what's her name? <laughs> see i was like i was like oh i remember it's because i'll definitely remember uh satsuna and no i'm blanking uh it's the name <laughs> of the girl sadako right oh yeah that sounds right because i remember it because isn't that the character in the ring i never saw I that right but it was yeah. popular when we were in middle schools so. <laughs> <laughs> um Anyway, there is several jokes, by the way, just an aside, that they can never remember each other's, you know, assumed names between, you know, <laughs> Sadako and Itsuko. Anyway. 
Yeah, I do enjoy that reoccurring joke because every time that joke reoccurs, I get reminded of what exactly right. name they're using in the scene. I think one of my favorite things about the way Sailor Pluto is handled in this is the fact like all of the characters are constantly raving the most obvious of them, but are constantly getting so frustrated she can't share information because it plays back into the same reason that Crystal Fall is great to an extent. Everyone has pieces of the puzzle and they're trying to figure it out. But presumably she has most of the entire puzzle, but she can't share it. <laughs> mm. I, I, yeah, at one point, you know, Ray, Ray comes down here and she's like, wait, so like, do you know all the stuff that happened? And, and Sadako's like, yeah. Ray's like, you, you know the identity of the enemy? And she's like, yep. Do you want to know? <laughs> because like, do you want in on this information that I have? Because you'll probably regret it. And, you know, Itsuko thinks it over and she's like, yeah, tell me everything. And then we, the audience, do not hear all of it. And afterwards, right. Itsuko's <laughs> like, I regret asking that. And well, there's some tension there with Itsuko too, because she's been having trouble reading the fire. Like she is a small amount of future sight, usually, you know, when she looks into the fire and the sacred fire. But uh, it has been sort of failing her recently. Yeah, but it's more than Sadako has, because Sadako says, look, my yeah. future vision is running out. I cannot see, I can barely see anything now. And I can only see a little bit more into the future than I can't see anything at all. Um, one of the things that the, their conversation does, other than I think it's interesting, like, trying to give Setsuna or, you know, Pluto a personality and have her actually bounce off another personality, which is not something I see a whole lot of, mm -hmm. um, and which I mm -hmm. do think happens in that whole section. It also definitely makes sure that you, the reader, understand the dynamic that's happening in this conflict. It was pretty clear before, but, but Sadako basically spells it out, which is that the enemy wants the Sailor Senshi to all emerge and, like, get strong for an end goal that we, the reader, are not privy to. But, you know, Sadako and Itsuko, they're only... The only thing they can do is help the Senshi go along with this and get stronger and get together, because that's their only chance of trying to find a like, opportunity to strike or turn this back around on the enemy to begin with. Yeah, you know, in retrospect, plot information actually trickles really slowly through this story. And I think a big part of that is it's interspersed so much with character stories, especially the girls, but also, you know, information about the world. And I don't know, a lot of the times just like, there's whole scenes that are just government operatives talking to each other about stuff they're doing, you know? It's definitely, <laughs> I would hope that this is all building to a point, and I think based on, you know, all the information we have, I think this has probably always been clear in the author's head, but it's a lot of stuff moving together. Yeah, this is definitely a story where if you want to keep track of all the subplots and everything else, you might be best off taking notes. Well, you just have to go read it. Oh, but you mean while you're reading it, Mar? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there... Yeah. I would say the government operatives thing is probably the thing I'm fuzziest on. And I, I even then I understand all the broad strokes. It's just oh, like when they start talking about individual people who are on individual assignments and they got reassigned to individual other places, I'm like, I, I just don't quite... I just don't... I need like a little flowchart here or something. Like I need right. like a visual with like little faces being moved around or something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like recently, in the last chapter, like Captain Hero goes to talk to Ceci, who's like one of the board members. And I'm like, I didn't remember that they knew each other. Like, 
Yeah, well, I definitely they, had that same thought. I think they both kind of came into contact because they're both investigating the Serenity Council, right? Isn't that like the idea? He was put into contact it's, with her. Yes, it's the, the implication. Triad. So there's a lot going on there. I mean, maybe we could talk about all the government stuff in a let's, loose way. I don't know. Let's talk about the government stuff in a loose way. Good idea, Tori. Where do you want to start? <laughs> oh, gosh. See, again, this is the one I'm most fuzziest on. But, you know, uh, we, we focus in on Arroy, I think that's how you say it, and Hero, and Ceci are some of the main people. Ceci being one of the members of the, the council, the ruling council. Hero being a captain in essentially the uh like sort of investigation division which i think is is that s see this is the problem they all have different names are m s k i don't even which division <laughs> is which so maybe i'm not the one to talk about this see i was thinking that the s division was the security division okay but now i'm now i just realized there's a the m division and some other divisions as well so now i'm less certain of that <laughs> i know i've always been uncertain about that like, they explain it every so often. <laughs> Let's get this straight just for the record. S division is security. Oh, yay. M is manufacturing. But they're the evilest division, it turns out, because mm -hmm. they're the ones who are involved in the production of the evil crystal monsters. <laughs> um, now, the security group with Captain Hero, they, like, they do a bunch of stuff. They end up, a couple significant things happen. Okay, so for one thing, they end up in the middle of a fight because they go to arrest Ray, and they have this device that nullifies and like turns back, gives like feedback on Senshi powers, and they end up using it on on Mio, who's like there and who is Jupiter, of course, and you know then they're arresting Ray, and then crystal monsters bust in because it turns out the master was not clear that this device was being developed in the first place, and as the master's representative, 12, is that right? Uh, mm -hmm. late, well, Lady Blue says yeah. to the, the chairman guy, she says, look, as you should know, but it's kind of news to us, the reader, if this thing works on Senshi powers, it works on the master's power. Obviously. How could it not? This is knowledge <laughs> that we know very well, we two people talking that you, the reader, might not know. Um... And so she, she sends the crystal monsters to destroy that, and there's this huge brawl, and Senshi come in, and, you know, what it, what it comes down to is that that security group ends up fighting the crystal monsters, obviously, like, they're having mixed feelings about arresting this historical figure on the whole anyway. Um, and this is how it goes down, right? Am I misremembering things here? No, that sounds about right. But, um, and then they get their minds wiped on the way out by someone or other is another thing by the master basically by, is that who is that who mind wiped them i, I think so right. because here's the thing so lady blue is essentially like being controlled by the master right and uh, maybe the monsters i don't know what's going on with the monsters there's apparently two different types of monsters i guess we'll get there but um <laughs> i think that it's mostly the master's power that works through her as a puppet because we we get later that she's been her whole identity before she was subjected to this, you know, Lovecraftian horror episode we mentioned in the previous podcast is that her consciousness is like, as a person is receded to the back and she's being trapped. So whatever this new entity is, it's definitely like controlled by the master's power, the great evil, essentially. 
Well, in terms of their plotline, they do notice, though, that, like, their memories don't align with the physical evidence of what went down that night. And the fact that they were physically helping in that fight to begin with is a big cue to us as the readers. That, like, we knew these people are not bad people, but now we kind of have more of a sense that they might end up being key as allies in the longer term. Um, and it leads their captain to kind of go down a path of investigation also that's going to lead him more into, it seems like, turning against the, the evil government officials. And you mentioned Ceci as a character, Tori, and she can be summarized really quickly. She's one of the two members of the council who's not actually, like, done the devil's bargain with the master. <laughs> and <laughs> the chairman says they keep those two around just to have, like, a more human perspective, basically. <laughs> Um, yeah, which is an interesting thing for that character, I mean, for the master to say, because that has to be one of the most interesting plot points that's developing, in that why is they had the entire world on the ropes. And then at the end of Crystal Fall, I believe they said it's not so much they defeated the Crystal Monsters, in so much as it was just they started deactivating, essentially. So the fact that the, the fact that the master is like, oh, we need to keep them around for more human presence. And it's like, why? Why? You're trying the, to murder. <laughs> I think the chairman says that I'm not sure how much the master cares one way or the other. Um, but with Ceci, in any case, she starts noticing that, uh, hey, the rest of the council has secret meetings without me where they don't tell me what's going on, including like meetings related to the moon cats. And then she starts investigating stuff. And by the end of the most present chapter, she hasn't gotten that far, but the wheels are in motion for her to, you know, hopefully reveal the, the deep, dark monster secrets going on. <laughs> right. We have this big focus, though. Like, I think, Mari, you have a really good point. I think part of it is that the master, you know, whatever this dark evil is, is trying to gather power and has had to, like, live in the shadows for 700 years to do that. I don't know about keeping the human presence, but I feel like maybe they don't, like, the Master doesn't have enough power to fully overtake, and so is kind of treading lightly. However, that does leave this big opening, which is Ceci investigates, and then you've got Hero, who she calls on, but he was also recruited to, or he was, he wasn't, rec he was recruited to the Sankaku, Sankaku? I think that's how you pronounce it, yeah. By his superior, who I think is, is that Lieutenant Katata? I forget, but all the names. Anyway, it's very short and sweet and it doesn't say much, but it's implied that the Sankaku is not just a crime organization, but actually some sort of maybe covert op or something that is possibly working against the shadow government. But it's very quickly implied. It's like very unclear. I think it's definitely building up to the point where that is confirmed, that the government is essentially corrupt and they're going to have to rely on the Sankaku more because they're the ones actually attempting to benefit and rebuild the remains of Crystal Tokyo and everything. And, I mean, there's enough hints that have been dropped where, like, oh, the Sankaku are... Um... They're, they do organized crime to fund themselves. They don't do for their, like, whatever larger purpose they have, which appears to be some sort of, like, large anti-government kind of thing. And, but they don't do it as an end to itself. Now, let's see. So many plot threads. To continue to jump around arbitrarily, I guess we should talk about the new characters, or, like, kind of new. Because <laughs> we have 
at the end of one of the chapters, actually during the big three-way fight break-in that I mentioned before with, like, you know, people trying to arrest uh, Itsuko and that kind of thing, Sailor Moon shows up, which had been hinted at before. We saw an endos a figure mm -hmm. being approached by the ghosts of Serenity and being like, uh, so I'm your reincarnated daughter and you want me to be Sailor Moon? Okay, I guess. And But then she shows up in person with Tuxedo Mask, and it's a pretty big deal for everybody, including the reader. Because we've been reading the Sailor Moon fanfic at that point for like 12 increasingly lengthy chapters with no sign of a Sailor Moon. And, and here's the thing. It's such a different dynamic from normal Sailor Moon. Because original Sailor Moon, you start with Usagi, and everyone else is a supporting cast that grows up around her. And she's just so the most powerful as, you, like, as it is shown in the show. It's like, oh, she's always the one who destroys the monster. But because she's, because she's like the main character and she has protagonist powers, I guess. But in this case, we've been building up this whole supporting cast with no Sailor Moon. Everyone was like, everyone's been like, it would sure be nice if we had a freaking Sailor Moon to help destroy these monsters, which is something that Sailor Moon is famously good at doing and that we're not that great at doing. And so when she shows up, it's more like a sixth ranger in a Sentai show where it's like, oh, it's great. We've got, we've got a white ranger now and like it's a whole extra yep. zord. And now like, you know, he just like, no sell that monster and then cut it in half with a sword thank god and like that's how sailor moon showing up is in this fanfic it is and actually when sailor moon first showed up i went like double take like wait this can't be real this has got to be like a fake sailor moon i don't know they set it up in such an interesting way um it's hard to well, describe and and you're so used to the the protagonists being not not incapable but, like, so the underdogs that you're like, is McSpawn actually giving them, like, a big, a big mm -hmm. power up here? And it's like, yes, mm -hmm. he actually is. Uh, it's very satisfying to just, like, after all the, like, knockdown, drag him out, fireball spamming, like, trying to find a clever way to do this, like, slowly breaking apart crystal fights we've had so far, to see Sailor Moon do Moon Tiara action and just cut a thing's arm off in, like, a single, a single yeah. blow. And I think it's, like... It's very satisfying, but it's also more surprising because we just got the Crystal Fall chapter where we saw Yusaki get murdered by these crystal monsters and Serenity get her ass kicked to a degree by them. So when Sailor Moon, the new Sailor Moon, pops up, you're like, oh, okay, is this, is this a trick? Is she going to be... Oh, she can do something. Yeah, though it's interesting to note at this point... We're fighting Vitramorphs, which are distinctly different from the Christites that, you know, d attack during the fall, at least as, as far as we know. And this doesn't, this falls on the heels of them attacking M Division, right? Mm hmm. Or did no Ocho? They haven't, attacked, no. They haven't, they haven't done that yet. Sorry. That, that didn't happen yet. You're right. Yeah. Sorry. My bad. Um, but yeah, no, um, it's really interesting. She shows up and Tuxedo Mask shows up at the same time, right? <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. Um, and it feels very classic Sailor Moon. Or, you know, that sounds weird. It's not, not, well, it does. It sort of feels, yeah, like Sailor Moon classic, you know, and Tuxedo Mask is kind of throwing the roses and stuff. It's, it, it's a very tonally dissonant with what we've been dealing with so far. Yeah, it is. It's a little bit of a tone shift, basically. Briefly. Let's, I want to talk about the character of Sailor Moon a bit, because she's, she's really interesting narratively. We've technically seen this character around, because her name is Ochio, and she works at the, um, at the Olympus, and 
Itsuko lets her sleep over in her room one night a week because she works a late shift and can't get back home on the subway or whatever. But, like, we haven't really <laughs> seen much of her to care about. And we start, once she shows up as Sailor Moon, we start getting her personality. And we're used to... S it's interesting because Sailor Moon is, like, the leader. And everyone has that ingrained in their heads from, like, history books and children's anime and or religious... Like, for whatever reason, everyone's like, Sailor Moon's the leader. And so I... I might have expected Sailor Moon to, like, be uncomfortable in that position or maybe, like, not, you know, not take that pressure very well or, like, there be to be some, like, conflict between her being the new person and being, like, the Sailor Moon, whatever. But mm -hmm. Ochio's specific personality, it's not like Usagi where she's like, I'm so giving and caring on an individual level that everybody loves me. Though she, she's got a little bit of that. She's, she's, like, astute. She's got good emotional intelligence. But mostly what she's got is this complete self-confidence and willingness to just like make a call and be like no we're gonna do this and mm -hmm. and everybody else is just like okay like someone's calling the shots great <laughs> and it's, yeah it's, you'd almost expect there to be a little bit more of like a, a pushback in some ways like they've been doing things the way they've been doing them for so long but not really no and it's just because ocho's like yeah i'm sailor moon i'm bleeding like i'm leader of the sailor senshi uh i think this makes sense let's do this and <laughs> It's not even really portrayed as a negative most of the time. I mean, Artemis calls her out on, like, that seems like, you know, like, maybe we should hang back and do something and, like, be careful and get more information. But Ochio, as a character, is always like, no, it's better to be doing something, even if, even if it might not be the optimal thing, than to stand back and do nothing. It's better to seize the initiative. And so she's constantly doing that in, like, her not just as a Sailor Senshi leader, but in her personal relationships. She's active in, like, all of her relationships with other people. She's like, what do I think, like, how do I want to develop my relationship with this person now? Like, uh, what do I think would be best to solve this problem between two of my friends? And she just dives into those things constantly. It's kind of cool. It is. She has a very satisfying amount of emotional intelligence because... She manages to have a slightly higher emotional intelligence than most of the other, like, little teeny sailor sentry. And also, she's one of the most open-minded of them. That's what really struck me in the latest chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like, when she is talking to Suzue, and Suzue, you know, there, there could be way conflict here because Suzue is a Church of Serenity person and Ochio is Sailor Moon. <laughs> but Sailor Moon talks to her about it, She's like, oh, you're a Church of Serenity member, huh? Okay, okay. Um... Take me to one of your, like, church meetings. Like, I figure if you, if one of my team members is part of this church, I should know some more about it and, like, get to know, like, what its whole deal is. Because come to think of it, I actually know nothing about it. And... Yeah. I really loved her in that moment because it's, like, everybody else, like, DT, of course, Sailor Mercury, she's, she's always just, like, flippant. But mm -hmm. she's not engaging a lot, you know. She doesn't care oh. that much, but she's flippant. But you oh, got yeah, DP's response to learning that Suzue is a member of the Church of Serenity is, what jokes can I make about this immediately? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so you've got that, but then you've mostly got, you know, Itsuko has known for longer and has sort of come to terms with it, but then you've got Makoto, or, well, it's interesting because Mio was her new name, but then she had to go into hiding, so she changed it back to Makoto, which I'm not really sure why, but fine. Anyway, Makoto <laughs> is more, like, really enraged the same way that Itsuko was at first. Um, and, and Beth is really hesitant, you know, and, and just re like, basically Ochio is the only one who I think had a fairly reasonable response. Like even Bendis was like, I don't understand why this is a problem. 
But Bendis is typically sort of reserved about, like, constantly judging human behavior, like, in a way where she's just like, humans are dumb. Uh, why are you doing this? But she doesn't necessarily <laughs> try to understand. Like, Ochio at least goes, I should understand what's happening with this person. Apropos of nothing, there was a joke in one of the chapters that I really appreciated, where two characters are having a conversation. Maybe it's like Mio and Didi. And Mio's mm-hmm. like, why are, he, why are people so complicated? And Didi's like, oh, because if they weren't, they'd be robots or something like that. I, I might be messing <laughs> with the characters. And then later on, Beth is talking to Bendis. And Beth is like, why are people so complicated? And Bendis is like, well, if they weren't, they'd be cats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a cute little moment. Well, Bendis is consistently charming because we're always reminded that she is actually, a, like, basically, she's an adult cat, but she's only two years old. <laughs> so she's got these very narrow views of the world, but essentially she's very dismissive of human behavior in a way that I can kind of relate to. Like she's looking at it from the outside in and going, well, I don't get it and I don't care. <laughs> There's one chapter where just arbitrarily she's bored and she decides to go solve some human problems because humans have ridiculous problems that a cat can solve much more easily. And she goes and bothers <laughs> Suzue. And she's like, okay, tell me your problems and I'll, I'll help you with them. <laughs> and she does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a very satisfying moment. Because on one hand, you're like, oh, this is completely ridiculous. But it works. It works. She does solve the problems against the odds. <laughs> yeah. It, weirdly enough, because it's relationship advice. And you wouldn't think Bendis would really know anything about that. But she has this... Again, this outsider perspective, and it's practical, so. I guess we haven't touched on the other newish character, which is Tuxedo Mask. Um, I mean, he's not new because there have been these two guys, Mark and Liam, who have been around the periphery of Mio and Didi's friend group, having crushes on members of their friend group for the whole story. And from really early on, they've been like, oh, and Liam kind of looks like, you know, Mamoru. And Mm. so that's been hanging over our heads this whole time. Didn't they say that about Mark? When am I confused? I think it was Mark that looked like Mamoru. And then the actual uh, p- rug pull was the fact that Liam is the reincarnation because he's Claver and he doesn't look anything like him. If I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah he's Irish tuxedo mask. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and he has long hair. Yeah, he's Irish. Yeah, no, because there was this thing where like uh, Mio had a crush on mark but she was worried about dating him because she thought he might be the reincarnation That's of mamaru right. yeah okay but, but no but the other instead, guy is. yeah instead his best friend liam is and in fact he and liam live together um which results in some other interesting uh shenanigans i guess because <laughs> nobody else knows that so at this when they first go over to liam's apartment after they realize who he is Mark is hiding from them and hears everything and knows who everyone is, but doesn't reveal that to everyone and, or well, to anyone that knows until our most recent chapter. I, I just want to say up until this whole plot development, I did not care a single bit about Mark and Liam in any way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, they were failing the reverse spectral test all the time. It was like, all they really talked about was the crushes on girls and like, Okay, fairly accurate teenage boys. It's fine, but like I just didn't care. Um, 
I cared but, more about Mark because Mio seems so into him. And then there was this whole thing where he randomly met Beth. And he's like, oh, at least Beth is a normal girl. Ha ha. Because he knows that, like, Mio is Sailor Jupiter. And mm-hmm. so he goes on a couple dates with Beth. And he's like, oh, I should date a nice normal girl like Beth. And you're like, shaking your head. Straight from one frying pan to the next. Mm-hmm. As for Liam, he is Endymion reincarnated. Um, and um, on the one hand, I like, I'm, I'm a fan of Mamoru. I, I appreciate that the author called him out on being a totally goofy dork, which is accurate. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the, just the kind of awkwardness of it being like him and a whole bunch of teenage girls all the time. At one point, at one point, like Didi, I think is, is joking with him. Just like, how, how does it feel to like be here with, you know, awkwardly on the periphery of all these teenage girls at this meeting? And he's like, it feels nostalgic or something <laughs> like that. Right. Um, on the other hand, he doesn't, I've got to say, having Endymion around doesn't add a whole lot. It's like we already have an ancient survivor in, like, who is an adult person in the form of, uh, of Itsuko. And we already have a reincarnated old character in the form of, you know, Mio, later Makoto. And uh, for all that I'm fond of Mamoru, he's not very interesting. Um, and so, you know... He doesn't, he doesn't do all that much. He doesn't have any very major subplots, I feel like, going on here. No, but he basically plays the role, except for, like, randomly getting sick, which hasn't happened yet, and, you know, sick and in a coma for months. Uh, he basically <laughs> plays the same role that Mabaru played in the series, right? So. I mean, I guess it helps for, for a couple of scenes. He's kind of assisting other people's stories. Like, he's someone who can talk to Makoto when she gets extremely upset about um, Suzue's religion and, you know, no one else being as upset about it as she is. Like, he's the one who can go talk to her because he's, like, an old friend of hers who is not, who is not Itsuko, who Mio is specifically angry at at that time. But, like, I mean, it's fine. I, I, I'm glad there's a tuxedo mask, I guess. I was gonna say, he has this one weird character quirk that none of the other, like, fully, like, either surviving, like, uh, Itsuko or reincarnated in the same way like Makoto characters have, which is he slips between personalities, like present and past, in a way that like no one else does. Do you suppose that's supposed to be a case of like a more literal transition between uh, personalities or just as a narrative kind of note? Because I was reading that and I kept noticing that and I couldn't decide personally. I'm sure. Like the main distinction is that he will drop his Irish, Irish, they spell things differently, but Irish accent um, when, and then the characters from their perspective will say, oh, I'm talking to King Endymion now or something like that. But that might just be from their perspective. The only other person in the same situation is Makoto. And well, I would say, Tori, the better comparison mm-hmm. is Beth, actually. And Beth has a very surprising character arc in this, like, last couple chapters. Um, Because, you know, Beth, when she transformed, she always, like, felt more confident Venus Mm Minako-like. But then there's a sequence where all of them are visited by the spirit of their predecessor. Mostly. Not not everyone is, actually. I don't think Didi's visited by, by Ami, is she? Um, no, I don't believe she is. Several of them are. Um... And she gets to talk face-to-face with Minako, who's, you know, basically like, oh, yeah, you're doing great. 
uh, tell me about your boyfriend. Oh, and there's one more important thing I need to tell you, and then she gets cut off and disappears. And I don't know what that all is about. But since she encounters Minako in her head, she stops having that change in personality when she transforms into Venus. And that's actually a big crisis for her. And it's, it's interesting because I don't think I really understood Beth's personality super well up until that point, after which it's the only Beth we ever see. And I'm not I think that's my fault, not the writer's fault, because her personality has been the same the whole way. She's bookish, and she's a little bit reserved and, like, you know, timid. Um, but then you get, you get so much more of just Beth from that point onward. And it's very hard for her, because she's used to feeling justified in being a hero, like, or, like, confident in being a hero by being, like, Venus as opposed to herself. And from that point on, she's not. <laughs> yeah, that's... I'm just... I can't entirely tell. I'm still so... Beth and the Venus plot, subplot are one of my favorite ones in the store because I just can't fucking decide what I'm reading exactly from mm -hmm. this. I'm like, yeah. I don't necessarily think it's a botched reincarnation, which is what I think that I was kind of leaning more towards last year. But now with the latest chapter, I'm like, well, it could be, or maybe she's just got larger confidence issues than she seemed to already have. I definitely think there's a possibility that, you know, for some reason, though, this seems it's strangely unlikely that this would be the case because I feel like Iku has the most confidence issues, Sailor Mars. But mm -hmm. it is perhaps the fact that when Beth, well, she was the first one that, mm -hmm. you know, to be called. So perhaps the spirit of Minako would, you know, kind of guide her or possess her during her transformation or to help her. Right. That's a possibility. And then decided not to, right? Decided like, okay, now you need to do this on your own. That that's, I think, a possible extrapolation. We really don't know. But you know, like you said, Mar, it just we don't know. <laughs> but that's what it feels like a little bit more rather that than That definitely sounds plausible to me. Yeah. Now, in yeah, other people get visited. I like that Haruka gets to talk to Suzue. And one of the things Suzue says is like, I don't feel worthy to be a sailor senshi. And Haruka says, the fact that you're a sailor senshi makes you friggin' worthy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, confidence of that sense is probably foreign to Haruka, I think. Like, Haruka might be depressed over, like, I have blood on my hands. But, she, you know, she <laughs> wouldn't be, like, depressed over, like, I don't feel worthy to, like, swing this awesome sword around and kick someone. Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And speaking of past life conversations, we get to we get to see Usagi for practically the first time in this whole story. And by Usagi, I mean original Usagi. I mean Serenity, because the spirit of Serenity shows up and talks to everybody. And that's a very Sailor Moon thing to happen because I kind of I kind of forget this a lot of the time. But it's like her mother shows up to talk to the original group and original Sailor mm -hmm. Moon, uh, the spirit of her. And, you know, Serenity says, like, yeah, my spirit is, like, residing in the Ginzui show. I bonded really closely with it while fighting off the influence of the enemy. I'm not sure where I am, but I've been watching over all of you. And I have words to save to all of you. And I'd say, there's, there's one thing I want to rant about about that in short order. But there's, <clears throat> some, but there's some really cool scenes in there where, like, for example, you know, Makoto and, um, or Mio and Itsuko get to talk with Serenity after all this time. And right. It's very emotional. Well, yeah, and then Ochio gets to discover that she is 
not Queen Serenity reborn. She is not Chibiusa reborn. She is an unborn daughter that the yes. queen was pregnant when she died. That's crazy. And also a little bit funny in, like a, in an uncomfortable way because she did kiss the guy who is the reincarnation of her dad. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he he I mean, he was just channeling, yeah. you know, his past to yeah. masculinity. He's just as chagrined about that as anyone, I'm sure. He didn't yeah, know. I mean, it's not like because nobody knew. It's not like the worst thing ever. It's just like a little bit awkward. It makes them both uncomfortable. Obviously, it's weird, you know, soul babble like you know plot stuff that is totally divorced from reality, but. I think it's a smart choice narratively because it means that on the one hand, Ochio literally is the heir to the line of Serenity in a certain sense and can make that claim if she wants to. And so there's this looming sort of like the whole society being built over like, we're just ruling in the name of the queen until Serenity or her successor returns. That can still come into play. But it also means that Ochio, who is very strong-willed about this kind of thing, has the complete choice of navigating how much she wants to identify with that or not. Because she starts mm -hmm. off saying like, look, you might consider me your daughter. I am not sure I consider you my mom in any sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And same with Reborn Endymion. Yeah, she says, but she's like, I already have parents is something she says. Yeah. Like, so. And she wasn't even born the first time. <laughs> like, you can't <laughs> yeah, say Yeah, exactly. You know? Neo Queen Serenity did not send her forward to be reborn. She sent her forward to be born the first time. That's a really good point. <laughs> It does give it a nice, fun contrast against, like, uh, Mikado being... Mikado and all of her issues with her family, because they're like, oh, you're a cuckoo. And you could argue almost that that could maybe be the, maybe be the case if you're especially ungenerous. But with Ochiko, there's no arguing that. She wasn't born the first time. Is that even fully a reincarnation in the first place? <laughs> no, it's not. It's an incarnation, I guess. <laughs> right. No re about it, right? I, that is yeah. interesting, though, because it does, you know, like you both mentioned, kind of bring up the question of uh, how does it differentiate her? Like, if she'd never been born, then she has no past memories. Mm -hmm. And she essentially, like, having been quote unquote re reborn, even though it wasn't a re, doesn't have a genetic similarity. So, what is her connection? Honestly. And it also raises this other dangling plot thread where at some point Serenity's like, oh, by the way, you were gestating in my womb while I was using the silver crystal constantly over the course of months and bonding my soul, soul more fully with it. And Ochio's like, well, what does that mean? And Serenity's like, I have no idea. I just thought <laughs> you might want to know that in case it turns out to be a thing. It's never happened before. It's just like the exciting list of side effects on the that come with a pill bottle. You right. may not never have to use them, but just in case. You've got a family propensity towards silver crystal bonding. <laughs> like your doctor needs to know this. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I let me know if I'm running over you two at all. I'm just trying to like hit on all kinds of things while we can. Oh, absolutely. There's this plot thread I want to talk about with Iku. And let me just frame it for you in brief. At <laughs> the end of chapter, like, I Iku's been around and Iku is very timid and Iku clearly has some stuff going on in her life. 
but you get it right out, I think, at the end of chapter 13, that she goes back to her mom, and you find out her mom is just this actively horrible abuser. And that's her home life. By the end of the next chapter, let me just, like, you know, give the author props. By the end of the next chapter, she's out of that situation. It feels like a lifetime of reading. <laughs> <laughs> Tori, you're looking up something you want to say. No, I mean, that's exactly what I wanted to say, is that <laughs> I know that by the time they introduce this really, truly awful debasing abuse, which they describe in detail, mm -hmm. it felt like forever before she got out of that situation. And when she did, I was just so freaking grateful. Like, there is such a huge payoff for her getting out of there. And it's also treated spectacularly well because she, you know, I'm sure we'll go into a little more detail, but... You know, it's mentioned later that she's going to have a lot of trauma to overcome. Iku being this really reserved person. And this is like, I think when we talked about this the first time, right? We talked about Makoto's situation and how much, or Mio's situation, and how much that like made us sad and not want to read, you know, like just hard to read. And this is, it's a thousand times worse. However, in a way, it has framed a very clear villain, which is her mother. And also mm -hmm. her brother, uh, her brother, maybe not as clear, but her brother, like as a developing villain spawn. <laughs> there's there's a lot of things about that storyline that ring really true in a very uncomfortable, unhappy way. And one of them is that like one of Iku and Beth's friends has noticed something's probably really off about Iku's home life. She's even heard one horrifying story about like one like her puppy being killed by her mother when she was younger. And mm -hmm. her friend, who is also their same age, has not shared any of it because it makes her massively uncomfortable, because she's scared of what might come out of it. And it's very real kinds of reactions that happen in real life when people, like, kind of get hints of abuse. Like, a lot of people don't, like, want to run away from it, even secondhand. Um, that's not what they should do, but, like, it happens. And so that felt very real to me, too. Yeah, I really appreciated the way that it was handled in the story because you it's I think it's handled pretty tastefully on the whole and the characters do react in like very realistic ways. And it would be very it, it would be very easy, I feel like, for the narrative to paint Nanako's uh hesitation with the, all of this and her tendency to her preferred outcome of just not engaging with it. But she isn't. She's just she's just presented as like she's like a little fifteen year old or something else. It's understandable. It's not ideal, but it's understandable. And the narrative doesn't necessarily villainize her for it. I was actually unclear. You know, um, I'd actually read some of these chapters like shortly after we finished the last uh reading because i just kept like reading on so some of them are a little more fuzzy in my mind but how much did did nanako know at the time she knows the dog story and she suspects more because okay. because you know iku's often like absent from school or sometimes seems like sick or yeah or yeah. whatever or but but yeah she doesn't know all of it but here's the thing yeah i feel very sympathetic to nanako but there is the scene where Serenity is talking to each of them individually. And Serenity's kind of freezing everybody else while she talks to each of them, you know, in turn and has a conversation. 
she has a conversation with Iku. And she's like, I'm so sorry about all the shit you have to go through. And you you know that, like, you're surrounded by people who would, like, happily help you, right? And Iku's like, oh, but I don't deserve help or whatever. And Serenity's like, well, you're going to have to. It's going to be a hard path for you then. And she says some other things, too, that are, like, other plot-relevant or, like, you know, weird, weird magic-relevant things. But uh, Serenity clearly knows what's going on. And she respects Iku's choice of, like, no, I don't want to tell my friends about this. Serenity, Iku is a child. Iku is an abused <laughs> yeah. child. Um, well, you don't actually ask Iku's permission about whether you want this information shared. You tell Itsuko about it or whatever. Like, I know. What yeah. the hell are you doing, Serenity? <laughs> I was thinking at the same time. I was like, on the one hand, like Mari mentioned, Nanako is just a kid, like, doesn't know what to do with this. But, like, you know, Amato, you know, we're mandatory reporters. Like, you get a whiff of this stuff. You send it on to the state. I know this is not the same thing exactly. No, it's I'm, a different government, but like Tori, I, I would know have to check you know, the, the like, law, but I'm pretty sure Neo Queen is also a mandatory reporter. Probably. Neo Queen, I mean, she's you're dead. You're obligated but... to report uh, child abuse if you have good reason to suspect it. That does uh, sound like what they covered in training. Boy, I know. Yeah. So I was just very upset with Serenity there, and I don't think the author wanted me to be. I mean, maybe she could see that it was going to come to a head very shortly, but I don't think Serenity could see that it was going to come to a head very shortly. I think Serenity um, dropped the ball on that one. Look, I, I took it more as, like, she was only going to give... And I'm not saying this is an excuse, I think you're right. But, like, she's only going to give advice to people about themselves, you know, rather than about someone else's situation. But really, she should have told the other adult Itsuko about it. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it makes for an interesting sort of flaw because I don't I don't think we're necessarily supposed to blame her too much for that. But at the same point, it does establish, well, the Moonies are right there idolizing her. She is still a fuck up in some ways like everyone. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. That's probably not the lesson we're supposed to take from it, like you said, but I'll take that lesson. Sure. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. I mean, to, you know, it's very hard. I mean, you know, to forgive her, assuming she's not actually a goddess with infinite knowledge, right? And infinite ability. It's like, people have a hard time processing and understanding abuse. Like, she always came from a pretty good family situation. And like, maybe she just doesn't know how to handle this. And it's, it doesn't make it okay, but it makes it at least understandable. Yeah, it does. And that plot thread has some satisfying payoffs, where for one thing, Dee Dee adopts I mean, that's not quite the right word. Didi <laughs> adopts Iku. Um, when several of them go and confront her mother and just drag her out of the house and are like, yeah, this we're done here, um, Didi takes Iku home to her family. And Iku, like, gets to kind of... There's a whole plot arc of her kind of growing more used to, like, being in that family circumstance and, like, what her place is there and whether she's going to... Whether the equivalent of Child Protective Services is going to let her stay and all that kind of thing. There's also a satisfying follow-up where after they leave and, you know, they're like, Iku, like, they're going to, like, practically assault her mom. And Iku's like, no, don't. She's still my mom. And they're like, fine. Like, revenge doesn't solve anything, I guess. And they leave. And Suzume comes back as Rihanna's and she's like, yeah, I guess revenge doesn't solve anything, but there needs to be some consequences for your actions here. <laughs> and, she, and she burns down their house. She had a Haruka moment. Yeah. She just can't not administer a little justice there even if it's like not 
not related directly, even if it's not, you know, legal or just in some senses. She just needs to, like, do more than just take Iku out of the situation, so she burns down the house. Um, yeah, and it's very cathartic after we have, we sit through and we see everything with her. It's very cathartic to have that moment. It really is, because, like, this isn't just, um, I mean, like, I don't really want to go into the details because it is pretty awful, but it is that awful that essentially this woman is a malicious villain. And, like, I would make the argument that no matter how complicated people can be, sometimes they are malicious villains, you know, and she does horrible things to Iku, and that's basically all we see of her mother. So it actually does feel justified and cathartic when their house is burned down. Even her younger brother um, has been, like, slowly getting, he's 13, and, like, slowly showing signs that he might start to abuse her in, like, much more horrific ways. Now, there's also, um, I do appreciate the author at least, you know, this is a lot, but at least the author does go into a line, I don't remember the context, but something about reflecting on the child. I think it's when, um, DT's father goes to police station, like, how would this affect uh, the, the boy who was raised in the family to treat the girl this way? And so hopefully, like, my hope is that at least there's some salvation for this 13-year-old child that he won't turn into the villain, because the mother prefers the boy over Iku and, like, basically teaches him to abuse her. So hopefully he has a way out and he will not become that person. Yeah, hopefully. It'll be interesting to see how much that we might get follow-up on that further, because it seems as if this plot that is going to continue, especially with uh, the kind of snide comments that Diddy's father gets in the latest chapter. But I don't necessarily... I don't know. I'm not entirely... It seems as if it could continue to be addressed, but it also seems almost like that plot that is at the point where given we've known about this since I think about the third chapter, where it's just finally getting tied up with a bow. Yeah, it is because what happens is DT takes her in and then, I don't know how this happens, but Didi's father, he apparently has some connection to the police. He goes there, he makes a case. Uh, o Division, which I think is, I think it's O Division is like more like child services or, you mm-hmm. know, they come they investigate and they essentially decide that Iku can stay with DT's family indefinitely. Well, it's it's more complicated than that. There's all these weird moving pieces about everything landing just so. Because the the child protective services equivalent would have moved her to a family member, because there's family members who apparently check out and are like not, you know, crazy or abusive. But because of other things that were happening elsewhere in the government involving the kind of it's complicated. But it ends up working out and being credited to the dad. And he's like, I, I don't know what I did. I just checked in with the police. But he mm. gets some points with his daughter for that. It's kind <laughs> of funny. He, knew, he talked to someone that he knew. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I don't know. With Sharma, exactly what's, that's her dad's name, exactly what's going on with him. And I don't even know if I know his job, but. I don't know if I know that either. I was just trying to look and see if I could locate in the story if it ever mentioned his job, and because I also have no idea. He's kind of this Atticus Finch type like figure from To Kill a Mockingbird, where he's like just constantly sitting in a chair, reading like a newspaper, being very straight faced and responding like, you know, vaguely sarcastically to his daughter or something. 
Um, <laughs> or completely seriously, depending on the situation. Um, he, he's neat. He's very neat. His, the way that he interacts with his daughter versus the way that Beth's mother interacts with her, and obviously uh, Iku's mother interacting with her, it's just, it's very refreshing, and it's a fun little dynamic, and it fits, it serves to illustrate Diddy's character in a very satisfying way. Yeah. It's like, not to linger too long in this, but there are some really fun character moments, and like, I like that he was put at the forefront of this tale, because that allows Iku, who's been staying with them, she observes this game that uh, DT and her father play, which is... DT gets really mad because her father seems to always be able to tell when she's coming down the stairs, even though he's not looking at her and she's being as quiet as possible. And eventually <laughs> Iku sits in his chair and she props herself up with pillows to be as tall as he is. And she looks at her and she's still like, I still can't see the stairs. How does he know? She finally realizes there's a, like, a very specific reflection in a vase. And then Sharma, DT's father, comes down and is like, so you figured it out. And they have this very sweet interaction, which is very kind because, you know, Iku's father left her at a young age and her mother's always been abusive. And I just thought like, I just like really loved him in that moment that he's constantly teasing his daughter and he's so kind to this girl he barely knows, you know, to be her advocate. I, I, I don't know. There's things about this story that you, it have nothing to do with the main plot that just feels so good, I guess. Yes, exactly. I agree 100%. Speaking of having nothing to do with the main plot, there's all this main plot stuff that happens. <laughs> and I guess, I guess the main thing is that they do a couple of raids. Once they realize that the monsters are coming from M Division, they do a couple of like raids to M Division. The first one of which, they, they just kind of inadvertently release the super scientist who's being kept by the government to like do technology for them. And they didn't even know she was there, but they just, like, kind of bust in and she's like, oh, Sailor Senshi, I did, didn't know that was happening, because I haven't been allowed to see them in the news for 20 years. And then she just <laughs> kind of, like, helps them wipe the files they want to in jets. And she's going to be a very significant player going on, it's very clear. Yeah. And then the second raid, they figure out where the Vitromorphs are being made, like, what the actual facility is. And it's a big deal as a fight, because, I mean... Other than the blow-by-blow, blow, it ends up with them destroying all of these, like, tanks in which, like, people are being turned into these monsters by the manufacturing division of the government. And, and what's more, they end up killing Lady Blue, which is good for Lady Blue because, like, she gets her last unpossessed moments before she's dying, where, as the author had hinted, oh, she was, like, her real self was inside and suffering in that body the whole time while the master <laughs> spoke through her. Great. We needed more body horror in this story. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Anything you two want to say, though, about, like, those plot developments with kind of those action raids on the government? Not 100% about that entirely, I suppose, but I really do enjoy... I feel like it takes a specific skill set and it's somewhat difficult to write anime-style fights in a novel because it's, like, it's... They're so dynamic, and there's so many, like... It's a very visually focused medium, so being able to translate that into text and have the same sort of satisfying overall feel to it is pretty great. There's, the fight scenes in this are fairly fucking good. They are. 
And I think the author really plays to their strength in writing some of the, um, the tension through body horror in it. I want to give a shout out to a fight that I just skipped over in my summary there, the one at the mall, because I thought that made good use of space in a lot of parts of it. Like, yes. not that I could imagine where everyone was exactly in relation to each other, but the whole environment of it being in a, like an American style mall with like multiple levels that one could jump between or get knocked off of or like be on the complete other side of the like open space from the monster or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. I just never, I've never quite read a fight happening kind of in that sort of space. And it was interesting. It was, it was it was a lot of fun to read, and I did get a little bit, a little bit uh, confused on where exactly everyone was in relation to each other, but it was still very entertaining despite that. And I feel like the entertainment factor is ultimately like you can fudge a lot of things along the way, as long as it's still like very enjoyable to read. That's what ultimately matters. Well, let's see. What else do you two want to talk about? We've got a triage here for sure, because I think we've only got about 10, maybe 15 minutes before I need to wrap up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I was just thinking there's so much in this. I was trying to decide what the main points I'd want to talk about are. However, I think we touched on most of them. And I appreciate Mar's point about the action scenes, because I think they're, like, in general, well-written. And then we talked on you know, the horror scenes that have a lot of good tension in them. And we talked in the personal <laughs> scenes, which are strongly dramatic and then sometimes just sort of comical, like with Bendis. <laughs> and there's more plot points and there's more stuff, but I, I don't know if I would really pick up on another specific thread without pulling out way too many and unraveling the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I think we neatly touched on everything that I would have touched on or brought up at this point to discuss there's a lot of material in this <laughs> mm -hmm. i mean i applaud us for getting through it to be honest because this is dense and like honestly i just kind of recommend reading it because it is so compelling it has so many good points like in good elements i don't know if you can even really say we got through it honestly like, there's just so much, there's so many words that we haven't even touched on the existence of, much yet commented on. Like, the entire story involving Itsuko and her new identity, for example. Right. Um, we've, we haven't really talked about, what's her name, the other friend in, um, in Didi's group. Uh, that's, I, can't... I guess that is Nanako. No, 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 not. Oh. <laughs> wait, sorry, one more time. Well, Ken, Ken is Liam's girlfriend, so that's a thing. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah, I'm thinking of in Mio's group, right. There's this whole yeah. subplot involving the fate of Naru from the original series and, like, how much it's okay to let, you know, friends know about what's going on with them, friends or family members. Mm -hmm. um, there's, like, whole sub-things sub in some of the plots we touched on, like, that's, like, the whole, like, camping trip with Bath and, like, you know, things that come mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. We only talked about Suzu as romantic issues. Um, <laughs> There's a lot. And actually, you know, maybe an important thing to talk about would be the very end of the very new chapter, right? Where we sure. have the, um, the monster, a monster shows up emerging out of somebody's body and 
all of a sudden she have to fight it. And apparently they have government allies. They don't know what division from, but they fight it. It's a very tense battle. And it turns out the last kind of like last line is like, this was not a Vitramorph. This was a Christite. And I think that is super significant because <laughs> the Christites were what brought around the fall. So it's a thing. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and not that anybody's noticed yet, but at that same moment, crystal technology switched back on again. Oh, right, of course. Yes. That's like, it's a very good spot to, it presents so many questions, especially on what people will do when they start to notice. So far, our assumption has been like the vitromorphs were created in this lab by M Division for some reason or another. Um. However, a Christite is an entirely different thing that sprung from, you know, the source of evil. However, knowing that the source of evil is controlled the government, it's unclear how much differentiation there is between the two things. Well, there's also been all these ominous, you know, foreshadowings about how the Master is not fully awake yet. And I assume mm -hmm. that this return of crystal technology is also an indication that it is more awake than it was. I guess after the maybe, like, brief setback of Lady Blue dying as it's like, individual mouthpiece right because the christites are crystalline monsters however it would be kind of a, a weird and unique connection if they were crystal like if the crystal tech was connect well it was right like the crystal tech was connected to the christites in the first place it's just like how is this evil hacking crystals i want to know <laughs> yeah i'm really looking forward to that I kind of appreciated the explanation there when Isco's talking to Pluto about the past. And he's like, why did you just disappear when all the shit was going down? And Pluto says, it's because I, I got a glimpse of what was going on as soon as it started happening, like through the future. And I needed to get myself and the big, important garnet gem at the end of my time staff out of there. And so I guess she just like stepped to the, to the time gate or something out of like any reach of influence because she couldn't allow the gem, like, her talisman to fall under the enemy's influence. Oh, but, but that reminds me, as of the most recent chapter, Pluto did rejoin as an active combat member, kind of from mm. Itsuko, at Itsuko's urging, and that basically just leaves us Neptune, and there's, there's someone who felt drawn to the carnage of the fight of the Senshi, uh, you know, against this new Vitromorph, who is almost definitely Neptune, I would assume. Mm-hmm. Yes, and didn't we, I believe, I don't remember 100%, so correct me if I'm off, didn't we get told by Uranus that, uh, I mean by Haruka, that Macharu was reincarnated? We did, and that it would be very hard for her. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we also have the information, I don't know if you mentioned it last episode, that Saturn was not going to be reincarnated. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's going to be our last one. I think that's very fair of the author to take Saturn off the picture because it's hard, it's hard to deal with Saturn, especially for an anime-based thing like this, where it's mm. like, what does Saturn do? Well, she can either do basically nothing or she can kamikaze herself to destroy the big bad, which they mm -hmm. never really let her do. <laughs> and I mean, it also has like a you know, a plot reason, which is that Hotaru apparently, like, ended her own life eventually, implicitly just because she had had enough life, and it was an assisted suicide type thing, and there was no heir to the Saturn power, and, and, you know, Pluto says, the Saturn power is stirring, but it's not ready to be reborn yet, like, there's, there's no one carrying it, there's not going to be a Saturn around, 
to threaten to use Death Reborn Revolution and then not actually do that thing. Oh, I'm sorry. She does kind of use that. Threaten to use Silence Clave Surprise and then not actually do it. That's what she does in the anime. Twice. I'm still doing it. <laughs> it's like, no, you, you should have just done it on Galaxia. Why did you stop doing that? <laughs> like, I was at this assumption that it took, like, some sort of supernatural power that couldn't always be harnessed, so. Look, she faces off against Nehalenia and she's like, it's going to cost my life and I'm going to take you out with me. Silence Clave Surprise. And then Chibius is like, no, don't. And she's like, okay. And then against <laughs> Galaxia, she's like, look, I can take you out. I'm going to go with you. That's the price I'm willing to pay. Sounds like surprised. And Galaxy is like, I wanted you to be reborn so I could harvest your sailor crystal. And then she stops. And I'm like, oh, okay, why did you stop? Like, you could, you could still do that. Yeah. And still. Ah, Sailor Moon anime. Anyway. Oh, did we ever mention? This is, okay, that reminds me. One more thing. Is this, <laughs> yes. There is a Sailor Moon TV show in oh, this yes. world that is nothing like, you know, because we're based on the reality of, uh, like, on Sailor Booted. This is a completely different thing, and I think we probably mentioned this before. There's even, like, a, a what do you call it, intermission-type thing where there's an episode of it being shown. It's all about, like, mechs and nonsense. We find mm-hmm. out towards the end of this that uh, Sailor Pluto, Setsuna, Sadako now is actually pr- the producer of this cartoon. I think that's hilarious because, you know, Itsuko goes in and goes off on her for doing it. She's like, you're disrespecting everything. This is nonsense. It's untrue. And Sadako's first defense is to say, like, oh, well, I just wanted to honor the memory of Neo Queen Serenity and everything and blah, blah, blah. And it was like some sort of weird excuse. And then <laughs> it takes a couple seconds and then she's found like, no, I actually just thought it was funny. <laughs> yes, that was, that was a very fun moment. I know, I, I really loved that. Anyway. She just needs to find ways to amuse herself, which I totally understand. <laughs> In her immortal life. Yeah, she's real old. <laughs> Alright. It feels weird to stop talking about Sailor Moon 4200. Um, okay, <laughs> I guess just one more thing about the last chapter. Having just read through the entire second half of the series in one go, I didn't, I didn't notice a huge disjunction, despite the fact that there was like an 11-year gap between these episodes being published. I didn't notice any particular like huge writing shift. I didn't notice any major like continuity snags or like things that were dropped or anything like that. It, it seemed to flow pretty well to my read. Yes, that was. I was actually really impressed as I was going through because I was like, well, there's going to be writing drift. A lot of people experience like shifts in their style, even between like one year and the next, depending on how much you've been writing, how much you've been reading. But no, it's it fits perfectly. I wouldn't necessarily assume that this was written 11 years after the last chapter, which is super impressive. No, and I have a unique perspective, which is that I had just only in preparation for this episode read uh, uh, chapters 11 through 14 and then went on to 15 as soon as it came out. So I noticed no shift, even having read this all for the first time. I think that's incredibly impressive. Absolutely. I was surprised, yeah. Okay, then I think we need to end by finding things (laughs) to complain about or that we thought could have been done better in this story before we end on our praise or favorite things. 
So what do we want to call out in this story? I already did mine. It's Serenity's failure to intervene on Iku's behalf, which just jumped the hell out at me as a reader. <laughs> I think the main thing that I would complain about is something that uh, Tori touched on earlier. The government agents bit. I do appreciate that plot arc and I'm enjoying like seeing all of the characters, but they're so hard to remember who is who and what oh, yeah. their relationships are. And then I merge them together. I'm like, wait. Fuck. This isn't right. And there's always more of them than I remember, too. There's always, like, a it, few more government official or, like, government <laughs> agents than I remember there being. Absolutely. I, when I was reading through this chapter, I was like, oh, well, okay, I know this character, I know this character, and then I realized that I was merging Hero together in my head with a completely different character. Yeah. Yeah. I had the same issue. <laughs> I think that's fair. It's a lot. But like, but the thing is, is everything is so clear other than the government agents plots. Like they're there and I think you could follow them, but it's hard to track because they don't show up as often, you know? And mm -hmm. I think maybe the author could have done a better job of like reiterating who was who, you know? Especially because there's some characters that are only touched on minorly a couple times and then randomly come up one more time again. You're like, who was this person? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh yeah, and there was this other guy who was demoted and somehow mentally influenced by Lady Blue to investigate Sadako. But did he have any relationship right. to the main, like, S-Division people we know? Wait, maybe? Yeah, I guess he maybe. did. One of them knew him. <laughs> like, it was just... It's just a little right. difficult to keep straight. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it'd be different if it's like a TV show and we could like maybe remember their faces or if they just were mentioned more often. But Well, Tori, what about you? I mean, I, I think that that is sort of probably also my main complaint. I will say there was one other thing and this is like super nitpicky, but like I will say it's nitpicky for a reason. Um, there is... A lot of implied heterosexuality in this whole thing and the one thing that really got on my nerves and i know this is super nitpicky but it was it was weird for this sense it was in the most recent chapter um i know they were trying to do it because there's this group called trio and people usually assume trio is one person but it's actually three yeah that makes sense but there's one line where hero's talking to sessi and they're talking about it and they're saying like Oh, I can refer you to, or I don't know if that's actually, that might be, yeah, I think it's Hero and Sessi. Anyway, uh, I can refer you to someone who can help you. And their name is this, or they do this, or something like that. And the response is, it was weird, like the, the character thinks, it was weird that they switched from the singular to the plural. And I was thinking, even if you don't recognize that non-binary people exist, people still use they in the singular when they don't want to talk about or know someone's gender. Like, all of the time. It's a very normal And thing. this was in the chapter that just came out in 2021. <laughs> so I had a thought. It was like, it's not only like, this is a bit of non-binary erasure, and I know why you're doing it, because you're trying to acknowledge that it's this group that people usually think is one, but is multiple. But it felt indelicate, and it felt a bit insensitive, and also just, like, grammatically weird. Like, 
people do say they in the singular, even if they don't acknowledge the existence of non-binary people. So I'm sorry if that's nitpicky, but as a non-binary person who uses they pronouns, I felt like that was just like super weird. End of rant. Yeah, it is an interesting thing to note in it because I didn't necessarily note notice that bit, but I did notice, um, actually I quoted that bit when I was forcing my friend to read this with me. <laughs> <laughs> so let me scroll up. Oh, uh, Dee Dee talking to Suzu, I believe. And Dee Dee's like, if this keeps on, if this keeps on them agreeing, we'll end up having to get married or something. And I was like, I can't quite tell. I'm like, is Dee Dee supposed to be bisexual or gay or not? Because I was like, I guess you could kind of read her relationship with Eagle in that way. I was like, I don't think I've seen any mention of anything but heterosexuality. No, there's a lot of implied heterosexuality, like, because every time these girls ask each other about their romantic interests, even if they know nothing about each other, they'll be like, something about boys, boys and boyfriends. And, you know, mm-hmm. that was the same in the original Sailor Moon. However, of course, they did have a lesbian couple, but it was like, oh, a lesbian couple. But that was in, like, 1991. <laughs> it's 30 years later, like, we have progressed, so... I don't think you need to keep the tone of the original by keeping enforced heterosexuality in the picture. Um, however, uh, I will say it's it's relatively minor. Like nothing like super homophobic comes out. It's just oh yeah, it's kind of weird. Like you know what? That reminds me of one really nitpicky thing that I was thinking, and this is kind of a personal preference interpretation thing. But you know, you see more of the Church of Serenity in the parts that we read. And it's very Catholic-esque. It's supposed to invoke Catholicism, it seems like. They've got, like, oh, yeah. You know, they draw, they draw the mark of the yeah. crescent on their forehead. Yeah. I, I really like the mark of the crescent. But I was like, how are your priests not female? You know how? what? I didn't mm-hmm. think of that, but that's actually a really good fucking question. How is this not a matriarchal religion? I don't get it. Like That's actually a really good point. And it I seems mean, like all the priests are male. That's as far as we hear. We don't hear about that many of them, to be fair. But yeah, all, all, we hear about maybe two or three. But yeah, they are all male, so. I mean, I get it only in the sense of, like, the patriarchy twisting oh, things wait. around to, like, make tuxedo masks roll the, like, li- liaison between, like, the holy, you know, saints and the... I mean, I would have liked a word about that. That would have been funny. Just that, like, oh, yeah, Actually, they found a way to make this all about men in the priesthood. Amato, I think you might be wrong because... There is a part where um, when Ochio goes to the church, she talks to the intercessor, who is a man. But then mm-hmm. the man Och- intercessor, he re- the male intercessor returns to who I think is supposed to be the chief intercessor, who is a woman. I could oh, be wrong. Okay. I, I might very I'm not well holding be wrong. my phone at the moment. But... However, okay. you're right, because we don't see that person. I... I, I could be wrong, but I, I feel like I took note of that, that, like, the chief intercessor of their church was a woman. But anyway. <laughs> okay. That makes more sense. Still, you're right. It's based on the Catholic religion, which still doesn't allow female priests, which is like, hello. <laughs> Where are you? Where'd you come from? <laughs> All right. Well, let's end on praise, then. What is your favorite thing about the second half of the story that we were reading? 
Um, well, my favorite thing, I think, has to be that entire little Bendis interlude in the middle. Because <laughs> it's it was just painfully cute. It was painfully cute. It demonstrated a lot of things about each individual character. It gave us a little bit more information about Bendis. And it was just very fucking cute. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I gotta say, like, Bendis was sort of annoying at the beginning, right? With her, like, assumptions and sort of, like, kind of going off the rails. But, like, in this point, she's going around just to help out everybody else. And it's super sweet. And she's actually right a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little unexpectedly, but she is. <laughs> and she gets to, like, kind of interject her, like, do you have any tuna? With, like, really actually good life advice for the girls. It's <laughs> also, Troy, you were completely right. The, the chief intercessory is female. Of the Queen Heart Chapel. I would have... It's only, like, a couple lines, so I, I see yeah. why it was not notable. But... It didn't stick in my mind. I, I just got two heavy Catholic vibes there. <laughs> I think it stuck in my mind for that reason, because I was like, this is the first time we've ever seen a female intercessor. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mara, did you talk about your favorite thing here? Oh, yeah, I did. The Bendis bit. Oh, that, that was the Bendis one. Right. Sorry, Tori, <laughs> I could feel it with Tori. Um, I'm going to have a little trouble here. I mean, is it cheating if I say my favorite thing about this fanfic is that the author came back and published another chapter after an 11-year hiatus? And I love that. <laughs> I love that both because this is... If this is not my personal favorite fanfiction just on, like, a sheer, you know, personal level, it's, it's close. But also just because I love that... I think he's, like, some... You know, he's a grown man. He's married. I think he lives in, like, Australia or New Zealand or something. It's just this guy... And on the back burner of his life has been this unfinished fanfiction project. And somehow he gets back to it at this. I can't imagine. I don't even know what I was doing 11 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I think, I don't know. I'm just tickled witless over the fact. It's just very fun and it's very exciting to see people passionate about their various projects. And this is such a niche little project. I'm like, yeah delighted that he returned to it it's so weird because i feel like just a side note i totally guessed that the author was australian just based on some of the turns of phrase in the last chapter I'm, and I the way they exactly. spelled certain things i was just like this it's not quite british but it must be australia <laughs> maybe it's new zealand <laughs> but anyway my point is i think it's funny that i was able to guess that um <laughs> i it's hard to pick one favorite thing i mean I guess I'd have to say that it's not my favorite because I think Iku's arc is really hard to read, like her abuse arc. However, I feel like it's handled delicately and with a lot of attention to who she is as a person and how she's, you know, she's reserved and quiet because she's consistently been abused and how she's able to sort of slowly come out of that. And I felt like especially a fondness for how well that was treated in terms of like DT, of course, being who she is. Isley says like, we got her out. Iku's out. She should be fine now. And she has to be told, I think it might've been by her father or someone else. Like, mm -hmm. no, like trauma is a thing and it's going to take her a long time. And like, even then DT was like, okay, I mean, I don't really understand, but I accept that. 
and to slowly see Iku develop um, agency over her own life, I think it just really affected me. I I felt so much compassion for her, and I just have such hope for her. Like, honestly, it's one of the most compelling points of the story to me to see where Iku goes from here, especially after lingering in darkness for so long. We had so long that we knew something was going on with her. Then we found out it was this horrible abuse. And then, yeah, that it took a while to even get her out of the situation. But I will say I'll praise the author for how well they wrote that story and how well they wrote Iku and, you know, the compassion I have for the character. Well, if this story ends up continuing, Tori, it seems like she might have some kind of ominous mystical doom hanging over her head. <laughs> nah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah well you know but also like okay i guess i went on for a little bit but just to follow up just like in general the nuance of the characters like suzue is another good example like everybody's got something and they're all growing and i think it's 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 good character work in general yeah absolutely i think you're right tori i thinking back on this in this section that i read i'm like who do i find least interesting maybe mio and that's crazy, because Mio's super interesting. And I was super mm-hmm. interested in like everything that was going on with her in the first half. And it's just that there's so much interesting character thing going on with so many characters that I find myself like less like in comparison less interested. Okay, well, I mean maybe Endymion, who I still like but also don't actually care about reading about. But I even feel like there's sort of seeds for what, like, Liam's going through, too, even though it's much less than the girls. But still, there's, like, something. Like, the author paid attention to everybody having something, which is, I don't know, super cool. All right, then. I think I'm going to have to officially wrap us up. But, Mar, (laughs) thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And if you ever want to just talk about Sailor Moon 4200 with someone and you can't find anyone else willing to do it, uh, hit us up anytime. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And um, have a great day. I'm going to go get my dinner now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry to keep you so late. Please have a great dinner. No and... problem. Have a wonderful day, both of you. Thank you for having me. Hope we can chat again sometime. And now I will go through our usual end thing without Mar. It'll feel lonely. Yeah. That's all right. They clearly had to go, so. This was, crazily enough, episode 119 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, uh, about chapters 8 or 9 through 15 of Sailor Moon 4200 by Angus McSpawn, only some of which is technically retro. You can find it on the author's personal website or on fanfiction.net, but you may as well go to the um, original fan site, because, let me just point this out here, It's a very old-school HTML page, you know, for the most part, just kind of elegantly put together. There's a new chapter. Next to the new chapter is an animated GIF of, like, a flashing rainbow new, and it's just the most retro thing. I love it. Exactly. I love that they kept the old website. They're keeping it retro. Oh, yeah. And it's going to have an animated GIF here or there to mark which chapter is new. That's just how it's going to go down. I love it. The intro song for the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. 
You can find this album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Our podcast is edited by Dom Davis, with the assistance of several helpful bots that you should probably use if you record things on Discord. That's right, I'm going to plug Craig, the bot. And I guess maybe you have to get Garrick separately. The unsung heroes of podcast recording and editing. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can contact us by checking us out there or on Twitter at Retrofanfic, Facebook at Retrofanfic. Send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. And that's, that's most of how to contact us. Those are the best ones. You can also leave comments or reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use, and that would be greatly appreciated. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. And Mar already left. Unfortunately, they had a piece of crystal embedded in their body and was turned into a monster. Just bad roll of the dice among the Earth's population. Until next time, take care. Does that mean I have to now transform into a senshi and defeat Mar? Luckily, they live many states away, so just wait until the siege of Portland starts. I guess. I don't know if that's how being a senshi.